0: A.K.A. you can sit down. Awesome. How was Christmas? Yes. Is there anyone else like me that, you know that week between Christmas and New Year's, you don't even know what day it is? Is anyone else like you just, and, and you eat? And I told myself, I like I try to be really good and disciplined with my eating, and sometimes I go, am, and sometimes I'm really, really not. And I'm like, no, it's okay. I'm going to be good all the way up and on Christmas Day. I'm going to let myself do whatever I want, and then straight back on the wagon, Boxing Day. Never happens, never happens, right? Because there's all the leftovers for the next four or five days where you're just like, it'll be fine. Anyway, it's not fine. (laughs) (sighs) I've got some friends. Okay, cool. Good, just making sure we're all in the same boat. All good, fantastic. Um, I need to do a little bit of a poll, poll, vote thing. I hate flying. Is there anyone with me who hates flying? Yes, I've got some friends. That's it. I did this in Toronto this morning. There was only like three people and it's the same, like four people. What, what, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> okay, who loves flying? Just loves it. <sighs> yeah. I used to be one of you. <laughs> Jumping on a plane without a care in the world. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, as a teenager, I seriously considered becoming a pilot. I loved flying that much. Yeah. Yeah. And at the age of 16, I was fortunate enough to go around the world, and that's a lot of flights, you know, especially from New Zealand. Around the world is a long way. And um, I was never afraid, even on one particular uh, eight- or ten-hour flight when the pilot came on and said, look, there's a cyclone ahead of us. We can't, It's too big to go around. We're going to have to go and kind of go through the outskirts of it, sit down. It's going to be bumpy. I was fine. Woohoo! cyclone, yay. Let's see how we go. And... Um, When we lived on the Sunshine Coast, we actually had a friend of ours who was a pilot. in fact, he got his pilot's license before he got his driver's license. Okay, he had his pilot's license at the age of 15. Did you even know that you could do that? You can do that, right? And so what he would occasionally do, because he was a great friend, um, he'd just hire a a five or six-seater plane. And we'd just go somewhere, like it was really fun. Nowhere, anywhere too glamorous. It was only like a five or six-seater plane, but up to Fraser Island for the day. And we'd land, I don't know if you remember this, day, but we'd land on this grass airstrip, which had not been mowed in quite some time. It was only short. And we just spent the day at Fraser Island, and then we'd jump back in the plane. And, and uh, we had to hitchhike from the, from the airstrip to the beach because obviously we only had a plane. We didn't have a car. And we ended up on the back of some guy's utes, and they could not believe that we'd flown there. And then we had to fly back out, and it was a short airstrip with trees at the end and long grass. And I was fine. Like, yeah, bring it on, adventure, we're all good. (laughs) But somewhere along the way, that changed. And um, I started getting nervous. I think I started getting nervous about flying commercial somewhere around 9-11, I think. I think that's my earliest memory of getting nervous of flying commercially. And uh, I had to take my first post-9-11 flight on about two weeks later. So they would just reopened all the airports around the world and I had to fly to New Zealand and I was really nervous, like really nervous. And um, this is going to sound terrible, but this is what happened is we all got on the plane and we sat down and then they come over the speaker and they say, you know, these are your captains and they said that one of the captains' name was Captain something Hussein, and the whole airplane just rippled with this nervous laughter. You know, like now you'd think nothing of it, but two weeks after 9-11 it was like, what, what? I think that's when I started getting a little bit nervous. And then I started getting nervous during takeoff. And then someone decided to tell me, well, takeoff isn't the problem. Landing is actually the dangerous part of flying. (laughs) Thank you for telling me that. Awesome. Okay. So I started getting really afraid. And my problem is that I actually fly a lot because I love to travel. And when you live on an island like Australia to get anywhere, you've really got to fly, right? And so I fly a lot and my You know, my family lives in New Zealand, got to fly there. Um, But, you know, traveling involves flying, and I've got to try and deal with this every time. And so you'd think that the more I flew, the better I'd get, but I'm actually getting worse. And I think it's because statistically I go, well, I've flown so many times, the stats say something's bound to happen, which is just ludicrous when I say it out loud, right? And then, of course, there's the stories of, you know, when stuff does happen to just freak you out a little bit more. And I remember after 9-11 all the stories of people who are on the hijacked planes ringing their loved ones to say a final goodbye, you know. And I would put myself in their shoes and start to imagine, I'm stupid, but I start to imagine what that must be like and then I'd go down this terrible little spiral. Then there was the Malaysian Airlines flight that disappeared, remember that one? Um, then a friend of mine was on a flight during an attempted hijacking. That'll get you, right? I don't know if you knew that. And then another time I was flying into Wellington, New Zealand, and Wellington, New Zealand is known as Windy Wellington. It's basically a city that... Ha- it's built on reclaimed land because the actual geography of the area is that there's just mountains rising straight out of the sea. So they've reclaimed some land into the, into the, off the sea, and they've built a city there. So the only place with flat land to land into Wellington is coming in over the harbour, and then you land on this reclaimed land with, like, mountains every side of you so basically it's a wind tunnel and i'm flying on this tiny little prop engine plane into there and it was so rough people are vomiting everywhere i was convinced this was it i'm like oh, i'm dead i'm all got it's all go- it's gone but i was fine my worst moment though was beck harrison my worst moment was in russia give me a wave beck where are you <laughs> russia so we flew And we flew into St. Petersburg from Zurich, all right? It's about a five-hour flight, and it was on a big, modern plane. I'm kind of a little bit better, marginally, on big, modern planes. But when we flew out of Russia, out of St. Petersburg, we were flying to Helsinki, which is only like an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and a half away flight. But I forgot that. I thought it was another five-hour flight, right? So we get to the airport. I look out the window. I see our plane. It is the smallest plane you can imagine, And I'm saying, oh, Dave, there's no way we can make a five-hour flight on that plane. There is no way. And then I start going, why did I come to Russia? Like, why would I come to Russia? Because why are they going to put me on such a small plane? Only in Russia will they do that. Sorry, Beck. And Dave's saying, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. But then he always says that. What does he know? (sighs) And so then we get on the plane. And now that I'm on the plane, I discover not only is the plane small, the plane is old. Like, really old. There's no screens. There's nothing fancy. It's old. I'm like, it's probably as old as me, right? I'm old. I don't want to be on a plane the same age as me. So, I said, I've got no option. I've got to get back to Australia somehow. So, I put my seatbelt on, try and stay calm. And then we're sitting there waiting to taxi out. And suddenly, the plane's engine turns off. And then all the lights go out. And the air con stops. And we're sitting... In the dark, at night, on a tarmac in Russia. And no one says anything. There's no explanation. There's no announcement from the captain. There's no announcement from the hostess. We're just sitting there in the dark. Now, this is where I was actually okay, surprisingly. Dave was not quite so okay because he was a little bit nervous about going to Russia in the first place. And uh, on day two of our Russian trip, we saw Putin, which was pretty amazing, and uh, so he was a bit nervous about the KGB coming and getting him and all these things. And so we're sitting in the dark and he's like waiting for someone to get hauled off the plane. I was fine because I was convinced this was a good sign. I was convinced this meant that all my suspicions were correct and there was something wrong with the plane. Awesome. That means they're going to take us all off the plane. They're going to put us on a nice big plane, a new plane, a plane that works and we're all going to be great. Awesome. So we sat in the dark for about five minutes, and I'm fully expectant of being transferred out of the death trap onto a good plane. But no, after five minutes sitting in the dark, the engine started back up again, the lights came back on, the aircon turned back on, and we started taxiing down the runway. (laughs) I lost it. Did I not? (laughs) (laughs) I had so convinced myself that there were problems with this plane. And that we were about to be put on a better plane that was going to work. And then when that didn't happen, I just couldn't. I was hysterical. Like, I lost it. And I didn't care who saw me. I was bawling my eyes out. I'm holding on to Dave, like, for dear life. I'm convinced that the plane, because it's rickety, right? It's like rattling down the runway. It's not smooth. It's like, Ugh, right? I'm like, I'm not going to cope. The plane is going to crash. It's certainly not going to take off. And if it does take off, it's going to crash very quickly afterwards. I'm like, I have left my children in Australia. They're going to be orphaned. That's <laughs> and I was so angry at myself for being so stupid to go gallivanting off to a place like Russia and leave my children behind. What sort of parent does that? <sighs> Everything was shaking. Everything was rattling. I know. I'm with you. And I was hysterical. And poor old Dave didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> I just clung to his arm and I sobbed my eyes out and I didn't care that the stewardesses saw me just waiting for the moment of death to arrive and the moment that my kids were going to be orphaned. And of course, that moment did not come. And the plane flew perfectly fine. And remember, I thought this was going to be a five-hour flight. So after an hour, they came on, they were about to descend into Helsinki. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, it was all good. It was just a quick flight to Helsinki. The plane flew fine. The plane landed fine, and I was fine. The problem was, I didn't learn my lesson. (laughs) My fear just grew. The flight from Russia on a rickety old plane didn't actually calm my fears, it deepened my fears. And with every flight since then, it's actually gotten worse. So, and all these people who love flying, I know you don't understand, so think of your worst fear, and then just translate that, Okay? So fast forward to about two weeks ago, I decided to fly home to New Zealand to see my mum and dad. And uh, for me, that meant two flights there and two flights back. I had to go Sydney to Auckland, Auckland to Tauranga, and then back again. And from the moment that I booked my flights, I just felt this feeling of dread. I just felt this thing going, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? I didn't need to go and see them. Why did I do it? And then 24 hours prior to the flight, I just felt sick, like nauseous, just constant nausea, just... And then in the morning of the flight, I wake up and the dread in my heart was like, I felt like I was walking into my execution. And it just, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is true. And there was like a weight on my chest that made it so hard to breathe. And I knew logically I could get oxygen in, but it felt like I couldn't get enough in. It was like, I just felt like even talking about it, you can feel it, right? That uh, just pressure on your chest. What do we do at moments like that? What do we do when things don't go like we planned? Or when our frailty or our human brokenness threatens to just derail all our plans? Or what do we do when we just feel really weak? What do we do when we feel like we can't keep going? Because I don't want to be limited by my fears and I don't want to be limited by my brokenness. I don't want to just survive. I actually want to thrive. I don't want to be held back by my many, many issues that I'm just revealing to you today. So what do we do? I want to look today at Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6 and 7 says this For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. You know, at Christmas time, we focus a lot on those first two lines For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given right? We focus on this baby that is born, this divinity divinity meeting humanity, or this limitless God meeting limited humanity. And don't get me wrong, this is a good thing. This is good. And then at Easter, we focus a lot on the man who died for our sins, The the man who gave us the gift of eternal life. And that's also a good thing. But sometimes the focus of Christmas and Easter is so much on the one who was born and so much on the one who was born to die and the gift of salvation that we receive as a result that we forget about everything else that Jesus actually brings us. See, yes, he came to bring salvation. And if that was it, that would be more than we could ever deserve, right? If that was it, if that was all he ever brought, it's more than we could ever deserve, ever, ever ask for. But it wasn't it. He didn't just bring salvation. He didn't just bring eternal life for after we die. He brought abundant life for while we still live. So here we are in this week between Christmas and New Year's. It's after Christmas, and we're looking forward to a new year. We're looking forward to 2020 with all of its potential. And we walk into it with all of our hopes and our dreams, all of our fears, all of our strengths, all of our brokenness. And I want to focus tonight on the rest of these verses. And I want to take some time to just break it down for you. I'll read it again. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So let's break it down. Number one, the government is on his shoulders. What does this mean? It means I don't have to carry the cares of the world on my shoulders. Because he carries it. His shoulders are big enough and strong enough to carry the cares of the world and the cares of my world. It's not a burden for him. See, in Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has all authority in heaven and all authority on earth. You don't. And neither do I. So when we try to carry the cares of the world, we buckle under the burden. We buckle under the weight. But he is more than able So here's my question for you. Have you allowed him to govern your life or are you still trying to be in control? See, I'm a control freak. You may have worked that out already. I hate not being in control, which is probably why I hate flying. I actually am pretty sure if I was a pilot, I'd be fine (laughs) because I'd be in control, right? I don't know why I'm like that. There's this thing inside me that thinks that everything would be better if I did it, and if I did it my way. <laughs> everything would be safer if I did it. I've got a friend in Jack down here with us. Everything would work if I was in control. And the feeling of not being in control is scary. I have a 16-year-old learning to drive right now. Scary. Don't wave at me, <laughs> <You> brat. <laughs> and so when I say that out loud... <laughs> And I hear what I'm actually saying, I realize what this control freak thing actually is. It's me trying to take the place of God and govern my life, my way. Which really goes back all the way to Adam and Eve, right? When they ate the fruit to try to be like God, they wanted to govern. They'd already been given stewardship of the earth. They'd already been given dominion in the earth. But that wasn't enough for them because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be in control, but we weren't designed for that. Our shoulders aren't big enough. We buckle under the weight. It's a burden we were not designed to carry. The government is on his shoulders, not mine. There's actually rest in that. You don't have to carry it. So how about going into 2020, we let him carry it and we just rest in him. Number two, he will be called... Wonderful counselor. I love this. It's not just counselor. He's not just the guy that gives advice. He's wonderful counselor. You see, if you think about this from an earthly perspective, if you see a counselor or if you go to a mentor for advice and they give you wise counsel, you would only call them wonderful if their counsel was good, right? You would only call them wonderful if their counsel was wise and if their counsel helped you. And Jesus here is called Wonderful Counselor because His counsel is good. It is wise. It helps you live an overcoming life. In John 1, Jesus is referred to as the Word of God. He is not just a man of His Word. He is His Word, right? Which means that what He says is true because it's who He is. In 2 Timothy 2.13, it says that He is always faithful to His Word, Because to be unfaithful would be to disown himself. He literally cannot be unfaithful. It's impossible for him to not be true to his word. Because it would mean not being him. It would mean not being who he actually is. What that means is what he says in his word is true. So when he says he will never leave or forsake you, it means he will never leave or forsake you. When he says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that's what it means. When he says that no weapon formed against you will prosper, then no weapon formed against you can prosper. When he says that he loves you, it means he loves you. And not only that, he didn't just say it, he died for you. Greater love has no man than this, that they lay down their life. That's exactly what he did. When he says that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or imagine, then He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or imagine. And when He says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, then nothing, nothing you do, nothing someone else does, nothing that happens to you, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because what He says is true. So getting back to Isaiah 9 and these words, Wonderful Counselor. This is actually one of two times in this particular verse where the verse is talking about Jesus but also references another member of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is just a fancy word. Basically, our God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this can be tricky for us to get our heads around. But you know what? If God was easy for us to get our heads around, He wouldn't be God, right? If our pea-sized brains could understand everything there was about God, He wouldn't be God, okay? Okay. But we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And so this scripture, which is clearly talking about Jesus, because he is the child that was born, right? He is the Word made flesh. The scripture is also referencing the Holy Spirit, the wonderful counselor. We know this from John chapter 14, Jesus told us. John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him, but He lives with you and will be in you. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, the advocate that Jesus is talking about here is the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word for advocate is the word paraclete. And it means helper, advocate counselor. It literally is someone who advocates on your behalf. It's like a courtroom situation. The advocate speaks up on your behalf, pleads your case on your behalf, and speaks words of wise counsel to you. Our wonderful counselor in Isaiah chapter 9 is our helper, our advocate, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And in those verses in John 14 I just read, Jesus promises these things. He promises that the Holy Spirit will help you, He promises the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. He promises the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of what Jesus has said. So we have the wonderful counselor through Jesus, the word of God, and we have the wonderful counselor in the person of the Holy Spirit who's with us and will remind us of everything that Jesus said. What does this mean? It means don't rely on your own thoughts. (laughs) Your thoughts are deceptive. They will lead you down the wrong path. Don't rely on your emotions because your emotions are fickle and all over the place. They will deceive you. Rely on the truth of the Word of God. Rely on the truth of what the Holy Spirit reveals to you in His Word. When you don't know what to say, when you don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit will help you because He is your wonderful counselor. He's the one with wise counsel. He's the one who will teach you all things and be with you forever. Number three, mighty God. There is incredible power in understanding this particular truth. So often I hear people talk about God and Jesus as if God is like God and Jesus is Jesus and Jesus is not God and he's less than God or maybe he was created by God. And there's like this confusion that we have God and then we have Jesus and and we're not quite sure how that works. But let me just show you this. This verse reminds us that the child who was born for us, which is Jesus our Savior, is God himself made flesh. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name will be called Mighty God. The child who is born for us is God made flesh. This fact is reinforced in John 1:1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1:18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John, 5, sorry, John 8, 58, Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. Using that term, I am, was using the name that the Jews called only to God. In that moment, he was calling himself God. That's why they picked up rocks to stone him and try and kill him for that blasphemy. John 20, verse 28, Thomas sees the risen Jesus for the first time. And he sees the, the, ho- the holes in his hands and his feet. And his reaction immediately is to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Philippians 2.6, talking about Jesus, says he was in very nature God. Colossians 1.15 says the Son is the image of the invisible God. Make no mistake, all through the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, we are reminded of this fact. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God and he is mighty. He is a mighty God. What that means is I don't need to be strong. He is strong for me. (laughs) I can't say it any better than the way Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 12. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul had a very unique perspective. Every time there was a difficulty or a hardship, every time he was struggling, every time he battled the thorn in his flesh, every time he was sick, every time he was persecuted, every time he was insulted, every time things got really, really tough, every time he felt weak, he knew God's power would strengthen him. He knew that when he was weak, God would make him strong. See, so often, I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm going through tough times, I get cranky. I get angry at God. Why are you letting this happen, God? But Paul saw the hard times as an opportunity for God to show himself strong. When we are weak, he is strong because he is our mighty God. Number four, everlasting Father. This is the second time in this group of verses that Um, referencing Jesus, where another member of the Trinity is referenced as well. And this time, it's our Father God. And this helps us understand, again, that God truly is three in one, that through Jesus, we have access to both the Father and the Holy Spirit. And He is our everlasting Father. So because He's everlasting, nothing phases Him. Nothing surprises Him. Nothing can defeat Him, because He's everlasting. He was here before anything and he's going to be here for eternity to come. There is no weapon, no power, no force that can defeat him because he is everlasting. And he's our father. This everlasting God, this undefeatable God, this eternal God is also our dad. And he protects me like a good dad protects his child. In fact, he invented fatherhood. He's not like a dad. He's the original dad. And every earthly dad, no matter how wonderful, is just a shadow of our heavenly father. Our earthly dad's love, no matter how great, no matter how selfless, is simply a shadow of the love that our heavenly father has for each and every one of us. Romans 8, 37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is our Father, even more so than our earthly Father. And He's a good Dad. He's a Dad we can trust. He's a Dad we can run to. He loves and protects His kids. And His love is everlasting. Number 5, Prince of Peace. I love this one because more than anything else, peace seems to be missing from the world today and from our lives today. Our battle these days is often the battle that rages within our own hearts and minds. And both the origin of this battle and the outcome of this battle is a lack of peace. See, the lack of peace means our soul is at war within itself. We simultaneously attack ourselves and defend ourselves. We're filled with self-loathing. We feel like we fail at everything, and yet we excuse our behavior, excuse our attitudes, and excuse our speech. Accusations and excuses, all raging within, stemming from a lack of peace and creating a lack of peace. But he is the Prince of Peace. Peace is who he is, and peace is what he brings. No one else can give that peace because he is the prince of peace. Only he can bring it. And so he brings peace into the civil war that's going on inside our hearts. He brings peace to the control freak who can't control everything. He brings peace to the broken. He brings peace to those who are wounded by others. He brings peace to the fearful who can now rest in him. He brings peace to fractured relationships and fractured people. He is the prince of peace. Philippians 4.7 promises that the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 says the God of peace will be with you. This is the peace that makes no sense. This is the peace that is there in the middle of the storm. The peace that guards and protects our hearts and our minds because the Prince of Peace is with you. And these verses I've been looking at in Isaiah are actually bookended by two things. We started with the government of Jesus. Remember, the government is on his shoulders. And then we ended here with the Prince of Peace, the Peace of Jesus But just to make sure we've got it clear, Isaiah sums it all up again, and he says these words in verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. When we are willing to stop trying to govern it all ourselves, when we release control back to him, when we allow him to be God, and remember that I'm not God, we receive his peace. And we can rest knowing that there is no end to his government and no end to his peace. There's no one who can defeat him. There's no one who can take him down. There's no one and nothing that can separate me from him. And so I can actually feel safe to allow him to govern my life instead of trying to take control myself. I can allow the Prince of Peace to reign in my life knowing that there is no end to his greatness, no limit to his ability, and no situation where his peace cannot be found. So there I was, sitting in the departure lounge at Sydney Airport, waiting to board the first of two flights I had to take that day. And the fear had risen to the point where I felt like I couldn't breathe. It was like having this heavy pressure or heavy weight sitting on my chest. And I just felt like I couldn't get enough oxygen. I couldn't get enough air. And everything inside of me just wanted to walk out of the airport and drive home. I felt completely, completely overwhelmed. And I decided that enough was enough. (laughs) I could not get through the day if this is how it was going to be. And so I began to lean into the presence of God. The Bible talks about inclining your ear to God. And that's kind of the best way I can describe it. It's just a moment, just a a minuscule moment in the middle of the fear, in the middle of the drowning, where I leaned into God and listened for His voice. And that wonderful counselor spoke to my heart. And he whispered to me that I knew what to do. And I did know what to do. It had just been drowned out in the middle of the storm. But I did know. I needed to remind myself of his word. I recently saw a, f- a post on Facebook about things that you can do to help you know, calm anxiety if, you, if you're struggling with that. And the list suggested phoning a friend, breathing deeply, hold on to someone, go for a walk, have a bath with essential oils, engage all five senses, distract mys- myself with something like a TV or walk the dog, listen to calming music, do something with my hands, write down what I'm feeling. Drink cold water. Cuddle a weighted blanket. And you know what? They're all great. I'm sure many of them help. But I need to say this. None of them have the power that meditating on the Word of God has. Because everything else is just an action. It's just an empty action or an empty thing. But the Word of God is the power of God for your life. And so, reminding myself of the truth of the Word of God and reminding myself of the promises found in His Word, forcing the fear to shut up simply by drowning it out with His Word and His promises and His truth. And so, after 24 hours of this escalating fear, I sat in that departure lounge and I just leaned into His presence and I heard His whisper, ask me this question What is the truth? And just like Jesus promised in John 14, this wonderful counselor began to remind me of everything that Jesus had said, just like Jesus said he would. That the government is on his shoulders. I'm not in control, and that's a good thing. I'd mess it up. But he can carry everything on his shoulders. It's not a burden to him. My fear, my anxiety, my my worry is not a burden to him. He can carry it, and I can allow him to govern my life and rest in the fact that He's in control. He's got it all sorted. I don't have to. That He's my wonderful counselor. See, when I listen to my thoughts, I spiral out of control. The fear escalates so quickly I can't function. But when I incline my ear to His Spirit, He whispers truth to me. He reminds me of the words of Jesus. He will never leave me or forsake me. Forsake just means leaving someone right when they need you most. (laughs) And what did He say? I will never do that. I will never leave you when you need me the most. So I can rest in that. My wonderful counselor, my helper, my advocate, the spirit of truth is with me in those moments. He is my mighty God. He is not limited in any way. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. Because He is the mighty God, the plans of the enemy cannot succeed. Because He is the mighty God, no weapon formed against me can prosper. Because He is the mighty God, I have no need to fear any man or any situation. Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. The mighty God goes before me and nothing can stand against Him. He is my everlasting Father. He protects me. He leads me. He guides me. He watches over me like a good father, the best father. The kind of father that you run to, you don't run from. The kind of father who picks you up and you feel safe and secure in his arms. The kind of father that is a safe haven for his kids. He covers me. He protects me. He leads me. He watches over me. He is my strong tower and my safe haven. And he is the Prince of Peace, bringing peace in the middle of the storm, bringing peace that makes no sense, bringing peace that is actually a warrior. We think of peace as, oh, peace. No, no, peace is a warrior. It stands guard of your heart, stands guard of your mind protects you from every attack of the enemy, and brings peace that allows me to have a mind and a soul at rest. And as I sat there in the airport, meditating on the Word of God, reminding my spirit and my soul of who He is and who I am in Him, peace came flooding into my soul. The weight lifted off my chest. I was able to breathe. I was able to relax. I was able to just rest in my heart. And the nightmare visions that had been flooding my daytime imaginations just dissipated. Just gone. I realized, you know what? I'm not in control. The pilot's not in control. The engineers are not in control. That's a good thing. Because my wonderful counselor, my mighty God, my everlasting father, my prince of peace, he's in control. I can rest in that. And for the first time in many years, I got on that plane without fear, without any fear first time in years and as we took off I just felt completely relaxed this has not happened in so long but God had brought peace to my soul and God can bring peace to your soul in exactly the same way as you meditate on his word as you allow his holy spirit to breathe life on those words on the truth of his promises for your life so whatever 2020 brings us whatever comes you know there's going to be good times there's going to be bad times there's going to be times you laugh. And there's going to be times you sob. It's going to have highs and lows, whatever it brings. We can rest in the knowledge that he is with us. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. And he is good. I want to pray over you tonight. I want to pray over your 2020. Jesus, we thank you. You are here tonight. God, we thank you. You are everything to us. And the best moment for us is when we hand over control to you. And, Father, I pray for every single person here tonight. I pray over their 2020, over the the year to come, the good and the bad, everything that waits for them. Lord God, I pray that they will be so aware of your presence, that they will know that you never leave them, you never forsake them in the good times and the bad. You are there, Holy Spirit. God, I pray you would show yourself real, show yourself strong, show yourself true to these people. God, let every single one of them have an encounter with you where they know the truth of who you are in their life. Father, I pray blessing over 2020 for every single person in this room. And I pray that as we walk through this coming year, Lord God, we will be better and stronger and more in love with Jesus than ever before. God, that we will see souls saved. God, that we will see family members come to you. That we will see reconciliation with broken relationships. God, that we will see healings and we will see miracles. God, that it will be a year of overcoming. As we stop stop governing our life ourselves and give it to you.